do you view your own success? Are you leading with compassion or are you considered ruthless? There is plenty of room for both types of leaders, but the best way to lead successfully is to balance boldness and integrity, using kindness and compassion to earn respect. Combine this with a go-getter, visionary, and aggressive drive to stay competitive. Welcome to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with Kathy Fairbanks. We'll use the ideas heard today and in this series to help you use every advantage to achieve the best end result. Now, here's your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Welcome to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. I am your host, Kathy Fairbanks, and delighted that you've been able to join us today. And one of the things that I want to do is express my gratitude to the listeners. Our listenership is just shooting through the roof right now with the show, and I'm so grateful that you're finding the content interesting and that you're learning from all of our guest speakers. Now, today we have a couple of authors. I'll be introducing them shortly, and for the new listeners, I want to make sure that you understand the footprint of this show. And it's entitled The Compassionate Samurai Business Hour for a reason. And one of our sponsors, Clemmer and Associates Leadership Seminars, the founder of that company wrote a book called The Compassionate Samurai. And if you're new to that concept, what we're really talking about is being a warrior out there in the world, whether it's your personal life or your business life, but taking on warrior-like qualities not literally, but figuratively, but also marrying that with compassion. So you're not waking up in the morning and say, okay, I'm going to lead, but do I need to lead like a jerk or do I need to lead like a doormat? So you let that compassion marry up with uh, a samurai spirit and can accomplish truly extraordinary things in an ordinary world. And that leads me to today's guest because these gentlemen have focused on some extraordinary history and wrote a book. So today we're going to feature a book entitled When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision Making Lessons from the Antarctic. And when I first heard that title, I kind of reflected back thinking, wow, I don't think I know anything about the Antarctic other than where it sits on a globe and um, probably hadn't given any thought to the Antarctic uh, since maybe third grade when I was using crayons coloring in the, the geography maps. Well, Brad and David have changed that for me. I found their book to be incredibly inviting from a historical perspective, but also their brilliant way that they have overlaid the decision-making that took place with these explorers in the early 1900s, and they have overlaid that with challenges and questions for the modern-day business world. And that's what we're going to extract out today. Where do things that happened in the early early 1900s really impact our decision making and the way that we grow as a business and how do those decisions get made and what are the results of those decisions. So let me give you a little bit of background on both Brad and David. Now, Brad works in global marketing supporting SAP's strategic partners. 
Now, he's always had a lifelong fascination with how people and businesses can make better decisions. And he led with his graduate degree in decision sciences from the University of Pennsylvania. Now, he's American by birth and lives in London working for software companies, included Siebel, Oracle, and SAP. And with his co-writer, David Herzl, he has co-authored this book, and we'll get into how they met a little bit later, which I, I find is a beautiful uh, partnering story. Now, David Herzl, he's also an author. He's a historian and a small business owner. And he's written a three-part biographical book on the polar explorations of Tom Green from Ireland. So, gentlemen, I want to welcome you both to the show. I can't wait to get into this topic. Welcome, and thank you for being our guest today. Hi, Kathy. It's great to be here. All right. Fantastic. And thanks for inviting us. We're really pleased to, to be part of your show. Well, just from a voice just... perspective, this is Brad, and the other person was David. Perfect, perfect. Well, we want to we want to hear from you. And I kind of chuckled when I was reading this book. I think I shared with you uh, during courses of this book. I felt like I needed to put on a sweater because it really put me in what would be known as that landscape in the Antarctic, which I I didn't know too much about. Uh, and what I learned from you from the book is that no one had really stepped on that coastline until around 1895. So right at the turn of the century and could you paint the landscape a little bit about what was life like with these explorers and what was the draw the pull about the Antarctic to begin with I'll let you take that Brad okay okay well I'll start which is uh, life uh, the early 1900s was a really remarkable period and that's the period that our book is set in so, as you said, the first explorers set foot in and on the coast of Antarctica on 1895, and the book really starts taking place around 1903, where the first expeditions by Scott and Shackleton and, and Amundsen and Mawson, the, that set of expeditions took place between 1903 and 1917. And they're starting to penetrate into the interior, and most of the expeditions had the goal of getting to the South Pole. And... The Antarctic was totally unmapped and uncharted. I mean, they didn't even know the, the, what the coastline looked like. So not only were they going down to a place that was totally unknown, they also were going trying to do th- things that man had never done before, which is very long journeys into the interior where nothing grows. There's no vegetation. There's uh, uh, they didn't even know that the 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 uh, extent of the geography. They didn't know where the mountains were. They didn't know where, what the challenges would be. And they were bringing down primitive equipment, and they had no communication. That's really kind That's of right. one of the key things to always keep in mind throughout this book is that absolutely no radio. A little bit later on, they had very rudimentary radio. But in the beginning, no radio. So a ship would go down, and if it didn't come back, a ship would go down like Scott's discovery, his first expedition would go down, and leave messages along the way where a relief ship could come along in the next season, eight months later, and stop at these pre-designated places to find out what had happened. And if you got into trouble, you had no way to let anyone know you were in trouble. It was up to you entirely to figure out how to get yourself, your men, your ship, 
out of where you were and back home again because no one would know even that you were in trouble. And that's one of the key things about why this book, uh, the title of this book, When Your Life Depends on It, Decision-Making. Like, you guys are on your own completely. They're, expect no help but what you can muster yourselves. And that that's what I found so riveting and really so incredibly isolating. When, when I was reading the book, you shared uh, different stories where um, things went wrong from time to time. And um, as you say, there could be an eight-month month gap between when your relief ship would arrive. And God forbid, if you miss the rendezvous date, you could be stuck therefore at least another year. So can you give us an idea, paint that that landscape just a little bit better in terms of what would drive human beings in the early 1900s to even take this on? Because if there is such a thing as normal, that couldn't have been normal behavior. It would have taken a, um, a different type of constitution to sign up for this challenge. So what kind of people signed up for this, and what was their background? Well, different people. I mean, the attraction was, oh, man, it's, there's a lot going into why do these people go down there and why, you know, and take this risk. And part of it has to do with the entirely human nature to go to the horizon of what is known and to look over and to go into what is unknown and to be the first to see it. Part of it had to do with nationalistic aims, like for the glory, the greater glory of Great Britain, to plant the, the United Kingdom flag on the South Pole, and for the greater enhancement of science, accumulation of scientific data. Well, and that sounds like a great parallel. Uh, Yeah, go ahead, Brad. The other thing to add to this is that in the early 1900s, when you think about the globe and you think about land-based prizes, in a sense, that the only things that were the biggest, biggest prizes that would say you get your name in the record books forever is getting to the North Pole, be the first to the North Pole, be the first to the South Pole, or be the first to the top of Everest. But there was no technology or skill set that existed in the early 1900s for anyone to get up to the top of Everest. That was going to happen. In fact, that didn't happen until 1953. So the, the North Pole and the South Pole held, held great appeal to people in, in terms of, of something that, that they strive for and something that, as David says, something that nations strived for. And throw into the mix of that, that Norway was very interested in this. They had just separated from Sweden, and so there's a big nationalistic pride in, in, in their expeditions as well. Uh, it will, in, in addition to Great Britain wanting, wanting uh, to plant the flag, Norway wanted to plant the flag as well. And, and that's what makes the story so interesting. And it gets into the personalities and the, the, um, the desire to, to advance uh, knowledge and humanity and, and history. Well, and I'm just thinking about some of the, the areas, if, if we transfer that over to modern day, some of the trailblazers that we're just recognizing today with all of the disruptive technology that we have, um, 
it's pretty phenomenal that we today are still exploring the unknown. It just happens mm-hmm. not to be the North Pole or the South Pole or Mount Everest per se, but it's overlaying in business with with everywhere we look, no doubt. Um, let's move on to the structure of it, because one of the things that really became obvious to me is these explorations felt almost like a startup or a venture capital existence. Would you expand on that a little bit of of how the funding took place and, and maybe the parallels between a startup organization of today? I'll let you, you take, want to take that, that <laughs> Okay, so um, in terms of these expeditions, thinking of these expeditions as a startup. So what we have is an idea. We have um, we have this idea that we should go and explore the, the the South Polar region, that we should see what's there, and that we should bring things back. And all this takes money, and all this takes involvement. It's not something a single person does, but something a an organization is necessary to put all this together. Almost like uh, in in terms of incorporating. But there has to be this, there's this grand idea. There's this idea that is so captivating and so exciting to view this new frontier that the right kind of person, the right kind of uh, marketing can approach people that have money and say, here, we would like to offer you this opportunity to invest in this entirely new venture. And yes, it's risky. And yes, you know, we may lose, you may lose. On the other hand, the, the potential for the advancement of humankind is enormous. And uh, I myself was, um, I was started in a little internet startup. I was involved in the, in the early 2000s. And we had that feeling. We had that feeling that we're going to change the world if only we can sell other people on this idea. Mm, I absolutely, yeah, that, that is the epitome of a startup. And sometimes um, startups are by invitation only. That was my experience. And there was just nothing like it. It's, it was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life and one of the most rewarding things. Now, you are listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. We're going to walk into our first break. And when we come back, I want to dive deeper into the decision-making that occurred in the expeditions that actually parallel some of the same decision-making processes that we see in everyday companies as well as our own lives. Stay tuned for more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leadership development isn't limited to people in the executive suites or corporate boardrooms. Employees throughout a company recognize their role in fulfilling the company's mission. Effective leadership is a quality that must be shared by employees from the top down. Clemmer & Associates Corporate Mastery Workshop focuses on key topics to equip each student's development into a highly productive and ethical leader. For more information, visit Clemmer.com. That's K-L-E-M-M-E-R.com. 
Kathy Fairbanks is available to speak for your event or organization. Kathy is the Director of Client Solutions for Clemmer & Associates Leadership Seminars. Kathy and her corporate team provides experiential training introductions to clients worldwide in order to support them in achieving their desired goals. Put Kathy Fairbanks to work for you. Call 800-577-5447 or send an email to Kathy at clemmer.com. The next step for growth is yours. Call 800-577-5447 or email Kathy at klemmer.com. Each week, Larry Sternberg joins Dr. Kim Turnage to explore management issues from culture to discipline in Managing to Make a Difference. Join Talent Plus for 60 minutes of dynamic conversation, including real-life management examples helping you manage teams across the globe. This series airs on Voice America, the business channel, Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Managing to Make a Difference, every Thursday afternoon with Larry Sternberg and Dr. Kim Turnage. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. To reach Kathy Fairbanks or her guest today, please call into our program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is kathy at CompassionateSamuraiShow.com. Now, back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. Welcome back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour, your host, Kathy Fairbanks. And today we have guest authors, Brad Borkin and David Herzl, and they are the authors of When Your Life Depends on It. So we're talking about decision-making during the polar Antarctic expeditions of the early 1900s and really how that decision-making process overlaps with today's modern decision-making. And Early in the book, as soon as you open for the read, there is a very cliffhanging opportunity for decision-making that took place in the 1900s. And Brad, if you would enlighten our listeners around what was going on with one of the expeditions, and then I want to tie that into some major decisions that businesses make today. Okay, great. The, The story that we start the book with is the story of three men, and we don't tell you who the men are, but they're down in Antarctica. They've been on the ice now for two to three months. They've gone out 750 miles, and now they're all returning back to their base camp. So walking back 750 miles back towards base camp. They get to about 200 miles to safety, and the, one of the people on, on the team falls ill with scurvy. And they're, they're all live, living off limited rations. 
and he's just getting weaker and weaker. Day by day, they're getting weaker and weaker, and they're pulling a, a very heavy sledge. So they're using the British term sledge, not, not sled, but basically it's a sled filled with supplies. They're tents, they're sleeping, one tent, three sleeping bags. They're, they're cooking they're, whatever limited food they have, fuel for heating, cooking food, and things like that. And, uh, and they're pulling a the sledge along, and he's getting weaker and weaker. They get to a point where he's so weak he can't, he can't walk, and they have to put him on top of the sledge. So now it's two, two men pulling the sledge, and he's lying on top, and they have about 100 miles to go, and their distances are getting shorter and shorter, and they're running out of food, and they get to a point with 70 miles to go where he says to them, Look, I'm just going to die, and if you hang around, do if we continue what we're doing, we're all going to die. So leave me behind in my sleeping bag, and you continue on, and hopefully you can save yourselves. And at that point, there's a decision to be made. But he sees them hesitate, and he said, as your commanding officer, and he was their commanding officer, he said, as your commanding officer, I'm giving you a military order to leave me behind. And to disobey that order is mutiny. But to obey that order is, here's someone they've shared a tent with for three months, and they've known for well over a year. And that, you know, to, to leave him behind is just hard to think about. And to disobey a military order, which is ingrained in their being for all their military lives, is, is wrong as well. And the question that we throw to the reader is, what do you do? So, Kathy, well, and what that- would you do? Yeah, that that hit me, you know, literally right between the eyes because um, that was the decision I personally was left with about six years ago where the founder of the company of Clemmer and Associates passed away six years ago very unexpectedly. So you have a brilliant training company with brilliant delivery and we lost our leader. It wasn't by command. He just wasn't there. And we all had decisions to make in terms of a team. How do we move forward in our expedition? And so as I'm reading the book, I was astounded by how many parallels there were to our business lives. But let's take that out. Um, David, you've you've been in, in business. Let's take that out. Where do you find the responses of the general public. What what do people say when you put that question out there? What would you do? What are some of the responses you've heard from people? Well, a lot of people have a, a real difficulty with thinking uh, outside of, of, of thinking in any other way than, well, obviously this is what has to happen. Our leader here, this man, is going to die. That That is over. We know that's over, and it's up to us to continue on and get ourselves out of here and save ourselves. And everybody has to look in deep into themselves when they come to these really critical sorts of places. And this, I mean, this occurs in, in business as well. You just have to look at it, and you have to say, this is what we're about. This is what we believe in. Uh, one of the chapters in our book, the last chapter, is what's your higher purpose? And uh, we'll come back into that later, I think, but... But really, the higher purpose here is you have to make a decision. We are going to keep on. We're going to give it our all, and we're going to sink or swim. You know, that may not be necessarily the wisest decision in terms of preserving equity or something. Many people are inclined to cut our losses. Uh, and this, it, but it's this crisis point 
that you come to. And when you come to it, you look at everything and you say, all right, this is where we decide right here, right now, what we're going to do. And not every not everyone is, is willing to, to take that, make a sacrifice. When I've done pre- corporate presentations on this, and I've thrown out this question out to the audience, it's very split. And I really try to encourage the audience to say, okay, look at the person you're seeing there in the audience, and look at the person on your left, and look at the person on the right. And suppose you knew them quite well for well over a year, and you're tent mates for three months. Now make the decision. Now, and, and you don't have a choice. You, everyone in the room has to raise their hand. Are you leaving or not? And, and, and you don't have to explain why you're going to do this, but, but everyone in the room has to either raise their hand to say they'd leave him or raise their hand and say they'd, they'd stay with him. And it's, it's generally split 50-50, and it's very tough. It's a very difficult decision for everyone. What ha- if I tell you the story just a little bit to, to tell you what happens at the end, is they decide they won't leave him, and they continue on, uh, and they get to about 35 miles to safety, and they realize that there's... Uh, they just can't move him anymore. He's, he's just, he's just fainting away. They, they keep trying to revive him with the little brandy they have. And, and they're not sure he's going to survive the night. And they get to, to the stage where just the two, the two men who are, who are still standing look at each other and say, okay, we need to do something. And, and they said one of them is going to walk the 35 miles and do that walk with no sleeping bag, no supplies, take whatever limited food they have, which is three biscuits and two little sticks of chocolate. And it's going to walk. And so do or die walk. I mean, he's going to get to, to the hut where there may be some other men who can come out and rescue the others or not. And if he sits down for any, for a few minutes, he could e- easily die of hypothermia if he falls asleep, even for five, 10 minutes. Because it's mm-hmm. so cold, and they're already so, and he's already so weakened from being on starvation just for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And, and one one thing to, to consider about this particular walk is it's the last thirty five miles of a fifteen hundred mile journey. It's the very last ones. And the other aspect is, as it turns out, if he had stopped and sat down, if he had been when he got to the hut, actually. Within an hour of him getting to the hut, where there was men and they were able to rescue the rest of them, but when he arrived there, a blizzard closed down, and they were unable to leave the hut for another day and a half. So, had he been an hour later in his walk, none of them would have survived. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he you know, it's funny you blizzard. <laughs> You bring that that point up in the book, and I remember specifically where I was when I read that aspect of the book, and I was on an airplane, and I literally, when I realized, oh, the blizzard came in, I said out loud on the airplane, oh, you've got to be kidding me, <laughs> because I've been making that 35-mile rescue attempt, and then to be shut down for two or three days because of a blizzard. Um The obstacles just kept coming. So let's talk about some of these obstacles in terms of when decisions didn't, let's just say they were flat out the wrong decisions. What I noticed in this book, there was not a victim mentality to the wrong decisions. So how did that play out in terms of it's a clearly a bad decision, and what was next? Brad, would you share on that a bit? 
Sure. And, and I think, I mean, this, this story is, is actually a good example. The story we, we just told is a good example of this, uh, that, that in, in this instance, it was the team that, that survived. It was, it was working as a team that they achieved this. And so runners, they, they, they didn't blame each other for the circumstances that they were in. They, you know, he, this, this man got scurvy. It's just the nature of, of the hazards of travel in, in, in severe climates. And, and this was, um, just a tremendous team effort that they all work together. But one of the lessons that gets pulled out of this story is that even though they're a team, one person had to be a hero. And I think nowadays when I look at businesses that, and that's certainly the, work, the, the company I work for, we set up teams and we set up a team of five people and you expect each person on that team is going to pull 20% of the weight, right? They're going to, each person is going to chip in 20%. Mm-hmm. But actually for teams to be successful, you sometimes someone needs a hero, and sometimes that means that the other people on the team need to pull back and let that person be a hero, and then the whole team survives and does better. Mm-hmm. And and I th- think that this was we saw this being true in numerous different situations. We, we point out in the book of of of, of hazardous uh, challenges of of dealing with adversity. That it was it was team survival and and always looking at how do we survive as a team and how do we work as a team and and not blame situations or blame the weather or blame each other or blame the decision maker who may have made a bad decision. It's just like, how do we move forward from this point onwards? Right. And, 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 well, and I think it's, I think it's very, um, you know, companies out there have their mission statements and I, I I have found, at least with some of the the business clients that we've worked with, their mission statements are just printed on a letterhead. They're not. There's no breath in that. There, it, it didn't come alive. It's more like a, a two dimensional world versus a three dimensional world. And what really struck me with this book is everybody was on board with that footprint of the mission statement. It was their passion. It was their purpose for for different reasons, but they were united as a team with that. Um, We're going to take another break. And when we come back, what I want to talk about is not only that team element that is so essential in today's world, but I want to talk about some followership and the key component, kind of a, a secret weapon in business that we may not be tapping into, and that is of a second in command. You've been listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour with your host, Kathy Fairbanks. Stay tuned for our next segment. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Kathy Fairbanks is available to speak for your event or organization. Kathy is the Director of Client Solutions for Clemmer & Associates Leadership Seminars. Kathy and her corporate team provides experiential training introductions to clients worldwide in order to support them in achieving their desired goals. Put Kathy Fairbanks to work for you. Call 800-577-5447 or send an email to Kathy at clemmer.com. The next step for growth is yours. Call 800-577-5447 or email Kathy at klemmer.com. 
Leadership development isn't limited to people in the executive suites or corporate boardrooms. Employees throughout a company recognize their role in fulfilling the company's mission. Effective leadership is a quality that must be shared by employees from the top down. Clemmer & Associates Corporate Mastery Workshop focuses on key topics to equip each student's development into a highly productive and ethical leader. For more information, visit Clemmer.com. That's K-L-E-M-M-E-R.com. Do you realize that the root of your challenges lie within you? It's time to find out more about coaching and how it can help both you and your business. Coaching for Real with Ronald Graves will help you gain a deeper level of self-awareness to find the answers inside yourself. Our guests are business professionals just like you who agree to a coaching session on our radio program. Tune into Coaching for Real live every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. To reach Kathy Fairbanks or her guest today, please call into our program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is kathy at com. Now, back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. Welcome back to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. I'm Kathy Fairbanks. Thrilled that you've joined us. Today's topic is really about exploring. And I'm not talking about just exploring the Antarctic, where I know for me, the only way that I'm going to see the Antarctic is by way of a cruise ship. What we're talking about is with the authors, David Borkin, and I'm sorry, Brad Borkin and David Herzl have shared with us some polar expeditions and how that overlays with current day business practice. And I was so intrigued by the concept of followership and that of second-in-command in teams. And David, if you could unpackage that a little bit about how that practice worked extremely well in these South Pole expeditions and then how we can leverage that if we're not already leveraging the tool of a second-in-command in our business today, what are some of the business practices that we can put in place to leverage that as much as we can and create the results we want? Well, this notion of followership kind of stems from various conversations that I've had relative to leadership in quotes, you know, which is a kind of like a big uh, academic sort of field uh, of development these here recently in recent times. And the fact is not everybody can be a leader. Not everybody wants to be a leader. Not everybody wants to be in charge. 
And so for everyone that is a leader in the Scotts and the Shackletons and the, the CEOs and so on, they have to have someone in their circle who is who is ready to step into the role of leadership if need be. Now I'm going to go to a maritime kind of construct here, which is the captain of a ship says tells the mate, the first mate, what it is he wants done. And the first mate turns to the crew and gets it done. And that's what followership is to me. So leadership, the captain is the leader. Well, the first mate is the person who's actually the hands-on person who is in a position of leadership, but he doesn't make the decisions. And below the first mate is the second mate and the third mate and so on, uh, in which all the people lower in the lower echelons here all have to have pride in their work they all have to be very competent in their work and they have to be able to make decisions uh, independently that are going to benefit the whole project as a whole and the team as a whole and so so I, I wanted to look at this you know just more carefully this notion of not everybody is a Scott or a Shackleton and what you have is you have in the in the second tier, as you go down just a little bit, you have the Tom Creens and the Frank Wilds and the Taff Evanses and, and these other people who are absolutely, completely competent, but they don't want to be the leaders. They don't want to be the driving force. And what happens is, is when everyone is properly placed or well-placed in the hierarchy, then everyone is content with their position. Everyone is happy, and the whole thing works better. And that's mm-hmm. what we're one of the things we're looking at here in terms of our chapters, you know, who's on your team and who's in charge. Sure, sure. Well, and I find it very interesting. Every uh, every company that we go out to and provide the experiential training uh, that we offer, and, and I should do a little sidebar around what experiential training is. Uh, I didn't know what it was because it came, um, I came from financial services where all the training really was how-to training or technical training or motivational. And experiential training is one where you literally are in a hotel hotel ballroom or conference center and playing games and exercises that simulate real life. So it simulates risk-taking and challenges you on boldness or trust or personal responsibility or courage. And the beautiful part of that is what we find is the way you play in a ballroom is most likely the same way you play out there in real life. And so you have light bulb moment after light bulb moment. And one of the things that I have found with, with companies today is the reluctancy of sharing their truth with their leaders. But if you have a second in command, someone who is that trusted advisor, the buffer or the filter, let's say, that you can extract some key information about what's driving the company or what keeps a company stuck through your second in command. Have have you um, experienced that in the past as well? Well, that's going to be, I'm, I'm a, more of a sole proprietor. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually the chief cook and bottle washer of everything that happens in my business. So I'm going to let Brad take a handle on that one. Well, I, don't, I, I don't, don't see this happening in businesses that I've been in. And I think that when you compare this to Antarctic expeditions, that I think it's something that we're missing out on in business today. Mm-hmm. Because when you look at these expeditions and the teams, and the, they had these second-in-command people 
either they were designated second in command or they were by default they were clearly that this was the second in command even though it may not have been stated that that's why the teams work so well and we have a whole chart at the back of the book listing all the various teams across these six expeditions and there are a lot of little small teams and big teams but all of that that really uh, exceeded expectations and 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 did really well and they and it it was because of the, the structure of the team and and it's I see teams today and like for example so the the, the team that I'm on reports up to a manager and there's like ten direct re- my boss has ten direct reports but there's no second in command on our team and she reports up to a manager and has several different colleagues and there's no second in command the team that she's part of, and so on up the tree. And to give an idea of what the polar explorers achieved in the early 1900s was that they were living under the most intense conditions. So not only were they cold, they were often on starvation rations, they were uh, suffering from frostbite, they were trying to achieve very hard physical things like walking long distances, uh, pulling sledges across Antarctica. And yet, not only is there, did they work well as teams, but there's no history of murder, mayhem, uh, sabotage, uh, falling out to the point of fist fights. I mean, if you can imagine, this is spanning 16 years, multi-year expeditions in this extreme environment, and yet not even a situation where there, there are any fist fights. It's really quite remarkable. And, it, and I think that's what is the power of how they form teams. And I think we try to, and that's what we try to bring out in, in the book. Well, and it lets us, I, I think it gives us the um, insight of how different our world can be today. If, if by chance you watch television, uh, there is no way that you can ex- escape the uh, onslaught of reality TV where someone's always voting someone out or uh, getting fired or whatever it might look like on reality TV. And the fact that that wasn't the culture in these early expeditions, that people could live in very isolating conditions um, without the drama, without the finger pointing, and really do this for the common good is astounding. And it's also inspiring uh, for for me, without a doubt. Um, One topic that I want to challenge our listeners with is when it came to decision-making, Decisions had to be made. In other words, not making a decision could mean death to you out there. And when we bring that into current life, I see companies not making decisions or CEOs or entrepreneurs not making decisions in a timely manner. And when I read the book, I have to thank both of you gentlemen, because one of the things that this book did for me is I started jotting down areas of my life where I was procrastinating on making the decision or just plain stuck. And as I was reading this book, it underscored a sense of urgency. I can always course correct when I need to do so later. So I really want to put a challenge out there to the listeners of order the book, 
enjoy the book and as you digest that book, make a list of where you've not been making decisions in your life and where that might be holding you back. Because I feel that this this book was a big gift to me in terms of moving me forward in some areas of my life that who knows, I could have held on to procrastinating for another six or 12 months. So thank you both gentlemen. I'm very appreciative of that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that we want to get into is this aspect of higher purpose, because there has to be a bigger why behind the why with these explorers. And if we can touch up on that a little bit, um, David, in terms of what made them tick because this was kind of superhuman things that they were doing. Um, so what is the deeper why, do you think, in terms of why they were willing to risk their life for doing this? And how does it parallel in today's business place? Well, one thing to think about is, is when this, these expeditions were taking place was in uh, Edwardian England, late Victorian and Edwardian England, and so there's a certain kind of, of British kind of uh, uh, concentration that's going on here and a certain sort of, of timeliness to that era in which it, you had this feeling that it was important to share. It was important to, it was okay to risk your life, literally to risk your life if that's what it took in order to bring home something big and something important. And so we have that we have that sense of purpose. Now, I've heard the uh, notion of science as being a, a pyramid, and you're always building the pyramid and making it higher and higher. And an individual contribution of of any individual to the to the whole construct of of scientific data is rather small. But you build and you build and you build, and after time goes by, you have this gigantic structure in which the 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 uh, contribution of any individual is kind of small, and there was—I think there was a sense of that. Like, well, yes, we want to do this. Yes, we want to get to the South Pole, and yes, we want to plant the flag for England. But also, we want to bring home the scientific data. We want to bring home the weather, you know, the meteorology. We want to bring home the glaciology and the magnetic observations, and just to go to these barren places and pick up these bits of data and bring them home was something kind of noble to do. There was this notion of, of nobility of purpose. There's a certain, uh, it's not for every part of everyone, but there's this, this notion of uh, a religious background, of providence, and not necessarily of, of, of you know, Christian um, um, thought so much as it's important. And there's this higher person, there's this higher aim to which we all aspire, which is guiding our own purpose here. And one of the, then towards the final chapter in this uh, higher purpose, uh, these three men went to, took a very, uh, uh, very difficult winter journey in which they very nearly froze to death. They very nearly lost their lives, all in pursuit of penguin eggs, eggs to study the embryology of the emperor penguin. And when they come back, all they had was three cracked eggs, but for them, it was worth it. Well, and I rem- I remember meeting that, and, and staying in touch with your purpose is 
literally key because um, if I lay it out in today's business world, if you're you're out there in a manufacturing plant or you're providing a service, and it, you're you're one small cog in the wheel, and you're not seeing that that piece of instrumentation or that service you're providing, potentially, if you're in the healthcare field, it's saving a life. If you're in the environmental field, it's creating less of a footprint on this earth. And so staying in touch with that higher purpose, I think, is so key. Brad, it sounded like you were going to have a comment here. Yes. There, uh, there's a, the, the, the search for the penguin eggs was a really telling piece of the book in terms of, of that journey. And what they were seeking was to prove a theory that there was a link between reptilian dinosaurs and, and mammals and what could be shown in the embryos of these, these eggs. And the, the unfortunate thing is that these, these penguins only lay the eggs in the middle of winter. So if you can imagine going out of your house, if you live in, say, Massachusetts or Michigan, and you're going out of your house in the middle of winter, well, now envision that you're doing that for days on end, a very, you know, a journey that's going to last 30, 40 days. You're going out of your house, and you're going to travel, and you're going to live in tents, and you're going to journey out. But not only are you doing this in, in the dead of winter, you're doing this when there's no sunlight at all. Mm. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's not only freezing cold, but you've got none of the warming sun, uh, to, to, which also means it's very dark. So mm-hmm. tremendous, numerous dangers that these people are doing, but all in the pursuit of science. And the the end result of that story, and we do talk about this in the book, is not only just the journey, but it's like the the they have this sense of purpose and they achieve something, but they achieve something that's different than what they set out to do. They did bring back mm-hmm. the penguin eggs. They, they, the, the, the theory was never proven that there was a link between reptilian dinosaurs. But... But they did bring back something incredibly valuable to today's world, which was, if you remember back in the 60s, and you may have read studies of, they, they banned DDT, not only in the United States, but across, really across the world. When they were studying DDT and trying to decide what were the effects of DDT, one of the things they, they realized was the, the, the penguins alive in the 1960s and 70s were exhibiting... Uh, traces of DDT in their, in their bodies in Antarctica. And someone said, well, gee, well, how do we know that DDT is just not inherent in penguins? Like, suppose that chemical is already in their bodies. Like, it's just, that's just part of the nature of that, that organism. And so I said, well, how, how can we do a control study? And so I said, mm-hmm. actually, uh, Edward Wilson and his team on that winter journey that David was describing they brought back penguin skins. Not they brought back eggs, but they brought back some penguin skins. And so we actually have in the natural uh, in the Museum of Natural History in London the penguin skins from 1911. And then they said, okay, so then we can study those skins and compare the DDT in those to the DDT in penguins today. And it was that difference that helped prove that DDT was was incredibly dangerous across the world. And mm-hmm. it's traveling all the way down to Antarctica and, 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 and affecting the penguins there. And it, had, it wasn't true in the 1911. And that was a bit that helped drive that pesticide to be banned. 
Uh-huh. Well, and I think I think that story really drives home the aspect of you can have the best plan A in the world and very rarely does a plan A work out just as it's planned. And plan B can invite some unexpected surprises and some unexpected wins. So we're going to close out the show shortly. But before we do that, I want to make sure everyone listening realizes that David and and Brad are available for speaking out there in the world about this topic. And if you would share your website, how do listeners get in touch with you? And what are some of the services that people can tap into to learn more, not just from your book, but you're able to provide live talks and presentations. So would you share with that uh, right before we close out? Sure, we'd be happy to. Uh, our website is www.extremedecisions.com, with a, and there's a dash between extreme and decisions. And on the website, there's a contact form, so you can easily contact us. And uh, we are, as, as Kathy said, we're available for uh, keynote speeches and, and talks on different aspects of this, on leadership, on teamwork, on uh, Polar, polar history and on decision-making or any combination of all of that. And they're just, they're just fascinating stories. And when we give talks, we're not just telling the history, but we have the original pictures of these original slides, the original photographs from the expeditions, and it really brings the stories to life. And there's so many interesting stories. We can tailor that to uh, businesses, you know, workshops or to, to keynote speeches and after-dinner speeches and things like that. And well, I'd like yeah. I'd like to add just that we bring a lot of passion to this. We are just so mm-hmm. fascinated by how these stories of survival can inform our decision making today. Well, and it shows. Not only does it show in the book, but when when I hear either of you speak of this topic, your passion does come through. You've just received a beautiful endorsement uh, from uh, what the Sir Sir Fines, and he was a polar explorer as well. So I'd really invite listeners order the book. It's a phenomenal book. When your life depends on it is the title, and then check out their website. And if you have an opportunity. I know David and Brad are in events all around the world speaking. If you have an opportunity to invite them to speak for your company, and I encourage you to do that, and just take on that challenge of enhancing your decision-making skills as you go out in the world to be a compassionate samurai. You have been listening to the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour. I'm your host, Kathy Fairbanks, and until next week, we say knock them alive. Thank you for tuning into our show. You can hear the Compassionate Samurai Business Hour live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, be sure to take action and create your own success.